Okay, good evening, everybody. This is Rich Duncan with Inkheist, and tonight I'm joined by my partners in crime, Shane Douglas Keene and Laurel Hightower. And tonight we're going to be talking to, we're going to have two guests on the show, um, Hank Early, the author of the Earl Marcus books, Heaven's Crooked Finger, and the Valley of the Devil, and most recently, The Echoes of the Fall, which was released through Crooked Lane Books. And we're also going to have Anne Pisarchik on who is the debut author of Before Familiar Woods, which also came out uh, through Crooked Lane Books last month. Uh, we're still waiting for Anne, but we figured we'd uh, introduce everybody. And how are you doing tonight, Hank? I'm doing great. I really am happy to be here. And um, I've been uh, looking forward to doing this for a while. So, And I'm glad to be doing it with Ian as well, whenever he joins, because uh, we've sort of struck up uh, at least a Twitter friendship. And uh, we share an agent and a publisher. So, yeah, yeah, that's uh, interesting to me too. Is because I I talked to you about being on the podcast, and then it was like the next day I talked to Ian, and yeah. He, oh yeah, I share I share a publisher with him, and it's right. or, or a um, agent and a publisher, and it's like oh cool, yeah. And um, I, I have not read his book yet. It is actually in the mail right now. Um, so I'm looking forward to it, but I've heard nothing but good things about it. And it sounds like he, he's exactly, it's exactly the kind of book that I would like every, from everything I've read about it. So I'm excited I, about that. I think so. I think so. Yeah. Um, it's, uh, definitely, definitely top notch rural noir. Yeah. I think, I think all of us recently finished it not all that long ago and I think you'll definitely enjoy it. And, um, you know, one thing that uh, we can ask Anne again too later, but um, like the one cool thing about your guys' books, you know, like you said, you share an agent and also a publisher, but you both create these very vivid character driven um, stories uh, that are set like in a more rural setting. And that's like one of my favorite particular subgenres. And uh, I was just kind of curious, you know, what is it that appeals to you about writing like these kind of crime stories and having them set in like a rural setting? Uh, pretty much everything. I mean, just, <laughs> uh, you know, I'm everything I write is uh, very, very affected by setting and, and, and the world around me. And, um, I, you know, I, I grew up. I spent a lot of time, I, I didn't talk about this earlier, but even though I was born in, in Georgia and then moved away when I was seven, I spent a lot of time at my uh, grandparents' house over there in North Georgia. And those people and that landscape just really had a, a lasting impact on me. And um, I think that was kind of what I wanted to explore a little bit with Earl Marcus, um, uh, with Earl Marcus series and, and, and my I have a, another novel under under my real name, uh, John Mantooth, and um, it is actually set in Alabama, but it still has that rural feel. So I'm just, you know, I don't know. I'm drawn to it. I'm sort of obsessed with it, I guess. Um, I'm work, what I'm working on now is definitely um, another rural novel, although it's it's horror. Um, so um, we'll see how it goes. And yeah. Sorry. No, you're good. Go ahead. Um, the interesting too is that you know rural horror is kind of 
sort of a rare thing, but nowhere near as rare as what people think it is. Yeah. And and to hear someone with the things you do, especially when I think about you talked about setting and I think about the fingers and how you must have approached that when you were building that um, world, so to speak. And the setting, as we've talked with other people about before, uh, feels like very much one of the major characters in those stories. Yeah. That that to me is that's the only way I can write. I mean that that's just um, when I sit down, I usually start with uh, with a setting um, before I before I have any characters or anything. And that's honestly what one of the things that in, inspires me to sit down and write is 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 thinking about places that that are that are mysterious to me or that seem to have something to say, um, at least speak to me. So hope that doesn't sound too pretentious, but. Um, you know, that's that's just sort of what what excites me about the whole process is is setting, yeah, setting and character. But but I think um, maybe most authors are excited by their character. All right, we're joined now by uh, Ann Pisarchik. I hope I pronounced that uh, correctly. Um, the author of Before Familiar Woods, which just came out last month through uh, Crooked Lane Books. How are you doing, Ann? I'm doing well. It's good to be here. Thanks. And um, Ian, we were just talking some with uh, Hank before you joined us about um, about uh, rural settings, and and that's something kind of that you all have in in common here with your rural noir. So um, I kind of lost track of things. I don't know, Hank, had you uh, finished answering on that? Is there anything you want to talk about more on that? Or no, I, I was done. Thank you. <laughs> you have uh, yeah, you have a mind like a steel trap, Laurel. Because I was sitting there going, "Fuck, what were we talking about?" I sobered yeah. up slightly before we placed this call. I'm t- Mr. Steel Callender over here. <laughs> well, I'll I'll just add, Hank, in, in response to some of what you said, though. I, I do think it's a, a very effective the way that you've used it, um, because it's just in in particular, I can I can see what you're saying when you say that you start with a setting because that builds the characters because obviously it's contributed so much to um, Earl, you know, and, and his upbringing and, and who he is because of it. And so that's, yeah, I think that's hugely effective. Thank you. Yeah, I, I agree. And uh, for Anne's book before familiar woods, I was just curious, um, like I live in central New York and it's pretty rural, so it's not quite the same as like Vermont, but reading before Familiar Woods, the town and the people in it, it reminded me of a lot of where I currently live. And I was curious if you just lived in a town like that or if you, you know, were originally from kind of like a town like that in the Northeast. Yeah, no, I'm. I grew up in uh, a town in the northwest Connecticut, which is up in the Litchfield Hills. Um, and it's, it's funny, I think, when you say Connecticut, similar to how sometimes when you say New York, everybody pictures New York City. Uh, yeah. when, you, when you say Connecticut, a lot of people picture the, the suburbs just outside of New York. Uh, but if you, if you travel west and northwest up to the tip of Connecticut, uh, it's about you know 95% uh, wooded, so that's that's the town I grew up in. And for before Familiar Roads, I had uh, that town sort of in my head as as a setting. Um, I wanted to set 
the book in Vermont for a, a couple of reasons. Uh, one being that I, I've spent a lot of time in Vermont and uh, love, love, the, love the people there. But also I thought I wanted to create this kind of fictional town in a different state just to get some distance, I think, from my hometown. So I wasn't thinking too much about uh, where I grew up. Yeah. And, and then too, I think some of it is like trying, you know, trying to get everything exactly correct to where people aren't going to get pissed at you for calling it, you know, a boulevard oh, yeah. instead of a, <laughs> instead yeah. of a pike or whatever. I think that's helpful to have a little bit of distance there. Yeah. Although yeah, some, create... some authors take a different, like Todd Kiesling recently just said, fuck you to his hometown and just really <laughs> took advantage <laughs> of it. <laughs> I've, I've yeah, been to Corbin, and, and I think that was a fine way to go. Create, create a lot of enemies that way, I think. <laughs> you know, the way he talks, I think he had a lot of enemies before he left. <laughs> but I I was always a, a big a big fan of uh, Ken Harris, and he sets his uh, all his novels in a, a fictional town in, in Colorado. And I, I think for the same reason, you can kind of let your creativity run wild and not worry about fact-checking. Exactly. Yeah. 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 I wouldn't if I were even if I were writing about Portland, I wouldn't actually write it as Portland because for the same reason, because people would hate my guts by the time I got done with it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but I uh, like reading both of your guys books and I know uh, Hank touched on it already, but I was wondering uh, for you and. Um, like setting kind of like as a character, like both of your books are very vivid um, in terms of the way you guys use the town and uh, like just the scenery and everything about it. And I was curious, you know, if that's like something that you try and focus on heavily with your book or is it just kind of like incidental that, you know, it comes across that well? Uh, I, I think it's just something I care a lot about. Um, I, I care a lot about the environment and uh, nature, and I'm, I'm sort of in awe of uh, woods in particular and the kind of mystery that they sort of innately hold. Um, so I, I almost can't imagine writing a book that doesn't take place in part in the woods or, or by the woods. And I, I think that's just a, a product of growing up in that, that sort of environment. Which makes sense. I know, uh, you know, um, Laird Barron writes a lot in environments like that, but he's lived in those environments like that his entire life and has a has an affinity with them. So it would seem like the natural way for you to go. Yeah, I, di- I didn't realize it was um, kind of an unusual environment until I, I left. Uh, and I think what what really got me interested in in writing in general was I, you know, I read through high school, I read a lot of books, um, you know, like the beat writers and, and those, those people and living in, uh, cities. And it wasn't until probably college when I started to discover, uh, writers like, you know, the Michael Ferris Smith of the world, Tom Franklin, Ron Rashall, all those people, uh, Annie Prune. And I saw that they were writing about where I essentially where I lived not only that environment, um, but also the people, sort of these blue-collar people who talk like I talk, talk like the people that I 
talk to and have kind of the same troubles and, and concerns as the people that I knew. And so that was, that was a real turning point for me to say, wow, I can, I can sort of, sort of join in on this conversation. Um, you know, it doesn't have to be, you don't have to live the life of John Updike to write, to write a story. Right. I, nor be as quite as pretentious either. Um, exactly. And I don't mean, yeah. I, you know, <laughs> but um, I don't mean that to insult Updike. He's a fine writer for what he writes, but um, it's something yeah, that but just un, maybe unfamiliar to, to certain yeah. to Yeah. And it's, uh, you know, those writers that you mentioned, um, I don't think you mentioned anybody that wasn't a hero in that list of list of names. Um, and they like you and Hank both seem to, I mean, embrace that, you know, every man, um, you know, approach to, to your writing, you know, nobody's special. And even in the instances where there is somebody who's maybe a little bit above cast, they don't get to be superhuman in you guys' eyes. They just get to be human like they are. So what about you, Hank? Influences for you for rural noir? Yeah, I mean, uh, Ian named named a few, um, but the, you know, I'm a huge Ron Rash fan, and I'm Tom Franklin. When I read his his short story collection, Poachers, I don't know how many years it's been now. That that just uh, it, it hit me hard. Um, uh, so I still think that those short stories, some of those are the best short stories I've ever read. Um, I, I couldn't hear everything he said, but I don't. Another another big influence for me is William Gay. Um, He's a Tennessee. He's deceased now, but a Tennessee writer. Um, um, yeah, I mean, uh, as far as kind of, I'm a little bit hearing Ian talk. I, I come from a little bit different angle. I'm not going to try to pretend to be somebody I'm not because most of my fiction is sort of, um, I don't know. Maybe there's a little bit of element of nostalgia for uh, a, something that I missed um, because. Once we moved from Georgia, I was I was a suburbs kid. I grew up in the suburbs um, from age seven until 18. But then I was always going in the summers to my grandmother's, which was rural. And I just I just loved it there. And I wanted to kind of always go back to that. So I think part of my fiction may be trying to return to maybe what I missed a little bit. Um, and, and I was always fascinated with um but yeah, uh, you asked about influences. Um, I've, James Lee Burke is probably my that's probably the guy that made me decide to want to write crime um, because to me he was the first author I read that was really doing a series, but, but also was doing the things that I loved with guys like Tom Franklin and Ron Rash and uh, William Gay and and those type writers too. His, his language was beautiful. He was the setting was was a huge part of the of the novels and he had real real characters for the most part that that you know that I could relate to and so after I read the Dave Robichaux books and um oh gosh I can't think of the other detail he had another one set in Montana I think it's Billy Bob Holland maybe yeah yeah those were good too and um that's that's sort of you know I, I would say that was the biggest inspiration for the for the Earl Marcus series I said you know, I could do something like that in, you know, 
in the part of the world that fascinates me and that that I'm attracted to, which was, you know, those those north North Georgia area of my of my grandparents. So that's a fascinating comparison too, because I had I same way I've read all of his work. I'd be surprised if I had missed anything. Um, and I had never really put that together, but I can see that because his his work exudes nostalgia. And like you say, as people with real fucked up, broken people, you know, like people are, and uh, it just feels so home, home like, not homey. You know what I mean? Yeah, 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 I do. And uh, I also, I, I, I'd be remiss not. I mean, and then I have this whole, this whole horror angle. Um, you know, I was a huge horror fan um, as a kid, and and then and through my twenties, I would say. In in my thirties, I sort of moved away from horror a little bit in what I was reading, and now I'm in my forties and I'm starting to come back to it a little bit. So and and I'm writing it again too. So yeah, that's uh that's pretty cool, and that's one of the things the like mission statement I guess for our site is we wanted to uh kind of bring our love of crime and noir and stuff with horror so it's kind of interesting it sounds like you have the same kind of like interests or you know that shane and i and laurel have um kind of with those two genres and that's one of the things that i found interesting about um you know your earl marcus series is you know you kind of weave some of that in there um like it's pretty much heavily noir, but like there's a lot of I would say horror elements in that are kind of like supernatural. Yeah. And I was wondering if that was, you know, is that something you always wanted to do while working, you know, in the kind of noir genre, is to kind of bring some of your horror influences into it because it yeah. comes across really cool. Yes, I, I did, and 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 I probably pushed it as far as I could push it before because Crooked Lane is is essentially a, a crime or mystery publisher. I think they're starting to branch out a little bit here lately. I've, I've seen some titles come out where I think that almost looks like horror. Um, but with my editor, I, I sort of had to keep it, keep it on the sly a little bit without pushing it too hard, but I think it worked. I think it was the right choice for this series. I don't think we needed too much of it. Um, but yeah, I was, I'm, I'm just always drawn to that. And uh, something that Ian said that, that I thought really that I really agreed with was was that whole idea of the mystery of the woods that 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 that's sort of what draws him to some of the rural and, and wooded settings and and I think that's something that I always feel too and that tends to take me more into a horror direction. Yeah, and uh, even to a kind of a little bit of a lesser you know supernatural sort of element, but like part of the mystery of the two boys in uh, your book and like, you know, like the whole mystery of, you know, kind of what happened to them. Like I, I felt that that had some pretty, some pretty creepy elements to it. Yeah. I, I mean, I sort of going along with what, uh, what Hank said, my favorite stuff um, to both read and watch is stuff that's really grounded in reality, but then has this sort of uh, something like just a bit off or something's just a bit in the direction of before. So sort of like the, uh, maybe the early X-Files shows, 
where it was pretty realistic, pretty grounded, but then there was just one sort of strand that ran through it that was just a little bit off. And I'm, I'm trying to do that a little bit more with uh, the, the novel I'm currently working on. And I just finished reading uh, Blackwood by Michael Ferris Smith. And, and I, I like that he did some of that in there as well, where there was, there was almost a nod toward this, the, the supernatural uh, landscape in that, in that book. But the, it was grounded enough where you thought, yeah, all, all of these things could happen. Um, with this added kind of mysterious element. Yeah, that's that's something that I really enjoy too. And I'm sure uh, Shane and Laurel have a couple examples, but like I've always been drawn to like those sort of, you know, noir stories that have that stuff in there where you're not quite sure, sure what's going on. Yeah, and I, and I should, I should add that, uh, that, that that story, these two boys, the uh, the seed for that was um, a, a true story. I where I grew up, I grew up on sort of like the foothills of um, Jones Mountain, which is kind of a big conservation area. And there was a story I heard growing up, kind of a kind of an urban legend about these two boys uh, who were found dead in a, a tent in the woods, uh, covered in human bite marks. And that, that's all I ever heard of the story. And people in the town would say things like, you know, don't go up to Jones Mountain. The, the ghosts of those boys are, are still there and, and all that. So that, that always kind of stuck in my, in my head. And when I started writing this novel, I, I started with the, the character Ruth and, and didn't really intend to write about that incident. But at some point, that incident started just kind of popping up in my head. And I thought, you know, what, what would lead, uh, what series of events would need to occur to lead to two boys being found dead in a tent covered in human bite marks. And so I, I went ahead and kind of wrote this novel. And after I was done, I, I looked up the real story, wondering if there was any truth to it or if it was just uh, an urban legend. And I, I found that there there, it wasn't quite as I had remembered it, but uh, there were two medical students who went up to Jones Mountain to camp for a weekend. Uh, one of them ended up dead. The other, kind of in the middle of the night, ran off, uh, knocked on somebody's door. This person opened the door, and they were kind of covered in blood and said, uh, you know, they'd, they'd been walking in the woods, and they became separated, and Eventually, that that guy was uh, tried for for murder and, and convicted. Um, and it was it's kind of a weird story. They they convicted him based on um, this sort of human bite mark analysis that uh, has has since uh, been delegitimized. Uh, there were all these witnesses that nobody ever interviewed. It's it's kind of ripe for a serial podcast or something, but. You know, the, the true story had, had nothing to do with the story I really came up with other than that was the kind of seed for it. Well, and that's I, I mean, I think that was a really interesting element to start it with. It's like it's, you know, when when both of you were talking about, you know, elements of noir and, and horror and like kind of pushing the edge of supernatural. I also think, too, it's like, you know, obviously so, uh, horror doesn't have to be supernatural. And I think it was just something that struck me with both of um, uh, both of these 
well, I keep saying both books, but obviously there's multiple books in the Earl Marcus series. Um, but I mean, you know, that element with the boys being found with bite marks on them. And then um, Hank, you know, the beginning of Heaven's Crooked Finger with the with the snakes like that. <laughs> I just think that was a really cool, just really intense element to start something off with. And, and both of those are just really excellent seeds to start with. And they really add, yeah, because they really bring not so much a supernatural element so much as a mystical, a mysticism to the work, you know, that really gives it that. For for a, for a blue blood like me, I that's you know, you always picture, you know, country life really down home and, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a good a good way to describe it, the the mystical. I like that. I like that word. It fits. Um, people, people always ask me if, uh, if I went to a church like that and, um, there's a lot of truth in, in that church, um, to, to my own experience, uh, when, uh, my mother grew up in, in a church similar to that minus the snakes. I added the snakes because I mean, how can you not add the snakes? That was- <laughs> <laughs> that had to be be there, but but it, just about everything else uh, was my mother's church, and then it was my grandmother's church when I would go to visit her, and and I was just I was so scared as a kid going there, um, and that was horror to me was going to a church service and seeing the the preacher stomp around the the front of the church screaming at everybody. Um, I I mean even my grandmother scared me with her she constantly talked about hell and she constantly talked about uh the lord coming back that was her that was her constant refrain and and i lived in mortal terror of the lord coming back and judging me um so there's there was a lot of yeah i know in the in the heaven's crooked finger especially uh, I focused on that, and, and, and it's a little bit over the top, but at the same time, it, it wasn't too far from the way I remember things. So, Man, my grandma had me so scared of God that I used to go to bed and pray that I'd go to hell when I died. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's how it was. I mean, heaven was the only thing worse than hell. Yeah. Well, you'd, you'd be in pretty good Good company down there. Yeah, finally get to meet meet Laurel. (laughs) (laughs) I'm still going to come by Portland before both of us die, okay? But then I'll see you there. Yeah, but but yeah, I mean, I I don't think in my experience that it's over the top, Hank, that any of that was because, yeah, I mean, I, I will say I have not been to a snake handling church. But I am in Kentucky. (laughs) And, uh, you know, I mean, that kind of um, just almost brain split with some people about that. And I mean, I'll, you know, I'll say full disclosure, I identify as Christian. I believe in God, you know. But I I also just think that that method of uh, practicing religion in particular, inflicting it upon children is pretty insidious. You know, at the same time, and I think this this has been the greatest lesson to me in in terms of being a writer and and characters is my grandmother who brought me to that church and who made my mother go to that church um, was one of the greatest women I ever knew. I mean, she was a very complicated person. I mean, you could argue that uh, um, subjecting a child to that was something like child abuse, but she was a 
in other ways, she was an amazing, wonderful woman. And I think that's probably what I try to get across as much as possible with, with characters is that there, there, there's no simple, there's no simple judgment um, for your characters in most cases. I think you're absolutely right. And I, I think that that, that is something that comes across and it's so, it's funny. And I, I know we didn't initially intend to do this as a, as a, um, dual interview with you guys but i keep like pinging back and forth like yeah you know because that that also felt very much like a theme in before familiar woods um you know ruth of course i I could have just spent forever in her head it really doesn't you could just write out her daily thoughts and i would sit and read it every day like a blog post but uh (laughs) you know it's it it was just very complicated in that too initially there's a lot of people that you feel like deserve judgment um and you know pulling through that and seeing the different sides of everyone and that everyone is complicated. I just thought that was a very, that came through as a theme too. Uh, so I was curious how intentional that was. Yeah. I mean, kind of like what Hank said, I, I don't think, uh, I don't think of characters or, or people, I suppose, as uh, black and white as good or evil. Uh, people are more complicated than that. And I think for me, um, I'm always trying to find uh, hope or optimism in some really dark places uh, because the, the way I think about it, I suppose, is that if you can find hope and optimism uh, in somebody's life who never really encounters any obstacles, it, it makes hope and optimism sort of a, a fragile thing. But if you can find it in these really dark places and these really troubled people who maybe do some really bad things, it, it makes it so much stronger for me. Uh, the fact that those characters can go through all of that and, and still at the end come out with some sort of hope or some sort of kindness uh, gives me gives me more faith. I like that. I like that point about it being fragile. If you only find it in people that have not encountered any obstacles, that's yeah. And and again, because I you know I see it in in. Uh, in the Earl Marcus settings as well, as far as like the, there's, you know, I feel like you both do such a good job of, of capturing with the rural noir, like, you know, a lot of these places are, there's a lot wrong with them. There's corruption and there's poverty and there's mistreatment of one another. But I feel like in both of them, there was such, um, uh, kindness in, in the lenses through which they were written and viewed, you know? And so like it, I mean, even, that Ronnie, of course, is such a great character <laughs> uh, in the Earl Marcus series as far as that goes, because he's complicated and he's, you know, somebody that is just like there's so much that's happened to him. And it's such an interesting parallel with um, with Earl's story. And and I think that's, you know, that's another great one, too. Hey, yeah, Ronnie, Ronnie's my favorite character. Um, he's he, great. He, yeah, he sort of in Heaven's Creek Finger, he just sort of had a. I guess a small role. I didn't know what I was going to do with him. And then I brought him back in the second book. And before I knew it, uh, and this is, this is the one time I always hear authors saying like the character did what they wanted to do. And I was like, I don't know. That sounds like bullshit to me, but this is the one time I really felt like that. The, the character just sort of took over and he just, he sort of did his own thing. And, um, and he became, he became my favorite character um, and, and sort of took over the second book. Um, and then I think he's, he's pretty strong in the third book as well, but yeah, I was kind of, sorry. No, you go ahead. I just, I was kind of of surprised because book one, 
absolutely fell in love with Earl. You know, I mean, nobody was going to outdo him. And then by book two, uh, I was starting to really get interested in Ronnie. And then in book three, you've got me loving Rufus and Ronnie more than Earl. You know? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's like, just because of the complexities of those characters, you, they just get more and more and more layered, you know, and so does Earl. And well, that was uh, part of my experience too. I did. I didn't really see Ronnie coming. I think I. I sort of tried to set Rufus up to be that, and um, in, in some ways, I think think Ronnie ended up being the better character. But you know, who knows? Uh, you know, the thing is, is that Ronnie is such a re- realistic fucking goofball that you can't <laughs> you can't help but love the guy. You know, <laughs> I think uh, my wife tells me that Ronnie's my alter ego. That's what I wish I could be. Well, I didn't mean a fucking goofball exactly. <laughs> no, no, I, I followed you. I followed you. He's just sort of uh he, he just doesn't give a shit. And um he just he just does what he what he thinks he needs to do and but he's got a good heart for the most part. So And sometimes crazy gets shit done. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. Which is, yeah, I mean, that's kind of what we see with Milk as well um, in Before Familiar Woods. There were, you know, there were definitely times that he was doing some stuff that I was like, Milk, man. I know. Like, oh, dude. Yeah. (laughs) This might not be a good idea. (laughs) Yeah, some some of that, there were a couple of scenes that got um, toned down a little bit, too, because... I was to, to sort of answer your your, que- your previous question. I guess I did have it in my mind that I wanted these characters to ultimately be likable. Uh, I wanted people to see them as flawed, uh, but trying to do the right thing, um, even though they weren't uh, always sure what what the right thing even was. Uh, and there were a couple scenes where I thought Milk went over the line a little bit um and one of them i i reined back and then uh the other my editor pointed out to me and um at first i was a little reluctant to to rein that scene back but um i i've since uh, come to realize that as usual she was uh, absolutely correct yeah and i think you succeeded as far as making the characters likable because when we were all reading this we have like a little chat thread and we were talking about it as we were reading it. And that's what I told those guys is even if you kind of like stripped away, like all the mystery and everything. And it was just like these characters and like regular everyday stuff. Like I still would love this book. Well, well, thank you. That's, that's nice to hear. Um, yeah, I'm in full agreement with that. It's, uh, it doesn't take it's like all of Hank's books, all of your books, all of your books, all of your book. Um, <laughs> they were books that I'm able to just open, start reading the first page and not want to put down and yeah. and then stay that way all the way through. And that's that's what I want. Rural and rural and rural. You there, Shane? Yeah, I'm yeah. That is. <laughs> I don't think it's me. I don't know. You were talking and there was like an explosion. I thought, I thought yeah, something I, happened. I, I heard 
<laughs> my fucking neighbor. <laughs> and we won't get into the neighbor feud tonight, though. <laughs> well, so, Ian, you are... I mostly remember this, I think, because I was super jealous of your swaddling capabilities. So you, <laughs> so you've you've got a pretty little kiddo at this point, right? I do, yeah. That that might be the only parenting skill I have so far, but I'm I'm working on it. That, uh, uh, the rest comes. If you've, I, I've got a two year old. I can't swaddle to save my life. So well done on that. Yeah, well, <laughs> so that's, our, that's what they tell me. You've just got to. You just got to be there. <laughs> That's the most important thing as a as a parent is uh, being there. But yeah, I've got a, a six month old, and uh, she's she's amazing. She's um, she's just a, a joy to be around. That's excellent. Ian, Ian, how old are you? I'm uh, 37. How old? Thir- uh, 37. Oh, okay. Yeah, you're still young. I'm jealous. <laughs> yeah, tell me about it. I don't. I don't feel young. I don't feel young at all, especially over the last, uh, well, probably the last four years. But it, but in particular over the last couple of months, I think this has uh, aged us all quite a bit. Yeah. yeah. Uh, now I'm one of those guys that people say, "Okay, boomer," too. So yeah, <laughs> old I am. <laughs> They only say it once, though. God well, damn, right. <laughs> I'm I'm with you in in spirit, as you can tell by my uh, technological difficulties. <laughs> well, I was curious because it's um you know it's something you wrote. Uh, uh, there's there's obviously a lot of parental focus in Before Familiar Woods, and so I would imagine most of that was written before you became a parent. So I was wondering, you know, how you feel because because I felt like it was all very uh, on point because I, I've got a two year old, but I also have a 24 um, year old stepson. So I feel too like the parenting, you know, kind of things that came up as far as like Ruth's parenting with her older child. So I was curious, you know, how you feel about that now, if you would write anything different or how you kind of access that before you hit the parental point. Yeah, I, d- I don't know. I I wrote it all um, cer- certainly well before. Um, I had my daughter. So, um, and looking back, I don't think I would have changed anything. Um, and I, so I, I take that as an indication that maybe I got, was able to get some things, some things right. Um, the only way it's, it's changed anything is, um, I think, I think now more about like with the book I'm currently writing, I think about the idea that my daughter will read it someday or, or maybe she won't be the least bit interested, but so she may read it. yeah, that's, <laughs> that's very true. But um, I guess there's a, there's a part of me that sort of wants to make sure it's something that would, you know, make her, make her proud. Um, but I, I, you know, I think I would have sort of kind of thought about that before anyway. Yeah. That's yeah, that's interesting. I I feel way behind. That doesn't occur to me. <laughs> I'm mostly well, just like, how long can I keep him away from it before he reads these sex scenes? Because this is really <laughs> awkward. It's it's probably it's probably a good thing. It's probably just my sort of crippling insecurity that uh, <laughs> that leads to questions like, will my daughter like this if she reads it 20 years from now? <laughs> 
I'm going to message you later and be like, oh, my God, I can't write this scene anymore. I don't think it's good enough. See, my <laughs> now I'm going to be worried about that. Too. Yeah, my insecurities were always, oh, my God, I hope my daughter doesn't find this here in the closet. <laughs> I sure don't want her reading this stuff. <laughs> well, and, and and I'd be I'd be curious to to hear from all of you because I think there's a lot of similar interests there. But for for me, I I grew up with parents who um, encouraged me to read and and to watch whatever movies I wanted. There there was no restrictions, uh, and I remember I at my local library and I think my school library. I had to get a note from my parents saying he's allowed to take out any book in the library he wants. And, and I, I discovered some, some weird stuff. Uh, but I've, I've sort of been thinking about that again with my daughter is, you know, what I do the same thing and kind of curious about you guys, if you grew up with it the same way. I did. Yeah. Pretty much all the way, yeah. I, I, my my dad, well, my mom didn't know the shit my dad was letting me do. But, <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. he took me to some some horrifying films, and he sent the gave me the letter to take to the central library to say let him read whatever the fuck he wants to read. And you know, right. my mom, if my mom had known that stuff was going on, she would have tore his head off. <laughs> Uh, (laughs) it's it's funny you say that shane like i always i always think it's funny how much shane and i have in common and that's literally like the exact same experience i had my dad was the one because my parents were divorced my dad would let me like watch whatever read whatever and my mom didn't really know about it and i wasn't gonna say anything because you know i was getting to watch like nightmare on elm street and all that other stuff so yeah hey i wasn't about to rat them out (laughs) nope (laughs) interesting though that you that's actually back before i joined the podcast they had a a question or like a yeah question submission and i asked them that question about okay so we all you know because i did the same thing my parents let me watch whatever read whatever but now that I've got a two-year-old, I'm like, ah, I don't know. Is that, I mean, right. is that the road I want to go down? You know, so I was kind of curious whether they'd done that with their own kids. So that's that's interesting that you asked that. Are you kind of reconsidering that for yours? Yeah, it, it's certainly uh, something I've thought about recently. I, th- I think I've probably thought about it because, and again, I'm, I think I, I have a six-month-old, so I'm again thinking way too far ahead. But um, I have a feeling my my wife and I sort of differ on this, this issue. I, I tend to think that it's good for, especially when it comes to art, for kids to pursue what they're curious about, what interests them, what, and I think those develop into, into passions. If, if I was sort of forced to just read the books that I was given at school, I don't know that I would have fallen in love with reading, and I don't know that I would have become a writer. That's a yeah. yeah, that's a way to look at it. Hank, you've um, got have you got two two kids? Yeah, I have two. And um yeah, my experience was I guess similar to Rich and Shane's in terms of uh my dad was a lot more open to um letting me read. And I would say, you know, my I've already mentioned my mom, she came from the side of the family that was deeply um Pentecostal. And um so she was pretty worried about what I was consuming, but luckily my dad would never go to church with us his whole life. He was very stubborn about that. He just wasn't 
I'm not sure he wasn't a believer, but he 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 didn't believe in in preachers and churches. He just he didn't trust any of them. And and Sunday he would never go. And he had a a, a bookshelf full of uh, Stephen King and and uh, Dean Koontz and. I guess this is the the mix here because then he also had Elmore Leonard and Robert B. Parker and um, just all these, you know, crime writers and horror writers. And, and he let me read from it. And and I fell in love uh, with that, um, with those books. So, um, but interestingly enough, uh, now that I have kids, um, I, I remember my, my, my mom always be wor- being worried about uh, something if it had sex in it. Uh, <laughs> my wife and I have been a lot more worried about the violence aspect. And I don't know if that's right or not, because the violence never really bothered me. But it seems like if you're going to if you're going to choose between the two, it would be better for your kids to see the the set more sex than more violence. I don't know. But we've kind of gone the other route. We're a little bit more concerned about, you know, every show that has somebody pulling a gun out and shooting somebody. Um, willy nilly. So, so there really is a there really is a, such a thing as a lesser evil, and yeah. I mean in situations like that, you know. So, yeah. But uh, I don't. I was with with my own kids. I just took the same approach my dad did with religion, with religion and literature and film. You know, whatever the hell they wanted to yeah. experiment yeah. with. with they were welcome to. I mean, look at me. I could tell tell y'all. This was something that was mentioned a little earlier, but I didn't get a chance to say anything about it. But about your kids reading your book, um, Ian, you mentioned that. Mm-hmm. Um, so my daughter is seventeen. And when she was 13, she read my first novel that I wrote under my real name, uh, The Year of the Storm. And I was excited about her reading it. Mm-hmm. I peek in the room and check on her. How's it going? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> uh, so after she said, she said, Dad, I'm finished. And I said, oh, okay. I said, because um, this was back during the time where I was starving for some kind of feedback or reviews or something. And I said, why don't you go put a review for me? <laughs> oh, good and she came back and said, dad, I put the review and I, and I pulled it up. It's four stars. I'm like, <laughs> and she said, dad, I was just being honest. It was a four star book to me. And that was when I sort of, my whole thing was deflated a little bit about, I realized my, my kids are going to, they're going to do their own thing. And, you know, Maybe they'll read my books. Maybe they won't. Maybe they'll like them. Maybe they won't. Um, but no, I, one, one day, one day, I th- and she hasn't read any since, but one day I think she'll go back and read my stuff, but I'll probably be dead then. So. My daughter read one of my poems the other night and said, I don't get it. Isn't that the worst thing somebody can say about your writing? I don't get it. <laughs> Like, ah, okay, honey, whatever. I don't get it either. <laughs> no, that's exactly what I was going for. Not getting it. There you exactly. go. Exactly. That's interesting. <laughs> totally just wanted to fuck with people. 
Now I want to read a short story from you that's called like the four star kid or something. Like <laughs> <laughs> you turn it four stars. It's just like, come on, you got to give me five. I'm your dad. <laughs> At least four and a half. What the hell? <laughs> I actually made my husband go in and give me a four star review on Amazon. <laughs> Because, right. <laughs> because he had he has not read my book. He doesn't read fiction, and he he does not he doesn't care for horror. But I was like, man, I don't have any reviews. I need you to give me one. And then I had this stretch of like nothing but five, and I'm like, that just looks sketchy. Go and give me a four. <laughs> makes it more believable. <laughs> so, in case people are lying about the five, I'll have my husband go lie about the four. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let's lie in a more convincing pattern, guys. Let's exactly. <laughs> you guys suck at this whole subterfuge game. <laughs> so one th- one thing I thought would be interesting because I heard this on another podcast is um, uh, and you just released your debut novel. So I was kind of wondering if you could talk a little bit about, you know, what that process was like for you and how you got there. And also for you, Hank, I know you're now, you know, you have a couple books that you've published. Kind of what was your experience when you were, you know, putting together your debut novel? Sounds good. Go ahead again. Yeah. Um, boy, I guess my, my path there was um, a lot of, a lot of misfires. I, I started writing in earnest probably 2009, uh, and I wrote a I wrote a novel. I, I, I say I wrote I wrote one failed novel before this novel. It, in reality, it was probably three because I I kind of rewrote that first novel over and over again, just kind of learning uh, learning how to do it really. Um, and while I was that, I was I was able to publish a few short stories that kind of gave me motivation to to keep going with it. Um, but eventually, I I learned uh, what what I think is a really important uh, skill for a writer to have. I learned that what I was working on just just wasn't good enough, and it was. I think the reason for it was it was probably a little too close to home i was writing myself into the the story a little bit too much uh, so i put it aside and, and started uh before familiar woods and then i just um you know went through countless drafts of it and um like i think like i think everybody does eventually i got, got to a point where i thought it was uh pretty pretty polished and uh, started querying agents and uh was fortunate enough to get a get a get a couple agents uh, interested in it, um, and I I was actually thinking about this. I talked with with uh, agents on the on the phone, and both of them were really nice, really smart. Uh, but one of them, when I was describing the next book that I was thinking about, had some reservations about um, another kind of dark book. And I thought, oh boy, I don't, I don't know that I can write a book that's not a little bit dark. Um, whereas on, on the other hand, the agent that I ended up with was, you know, was was all about it. So, um, so I ended up with him, and he was able to uh, to sell the book to to Kirk and Lane. Um, but I guess the 
kind of answer your question, the, uh, the process was just, uh, slow and, um, repetitive. Um, and I, you know, I used to look up all these interviews with, uh, writers I really admired, uh, and read about their failures because it, it always kind of gave me hope. Um, and I remember reading about Larry Brown, who's, who's probably the, the writer I admire more than anyone. And he wrote, uh, five failed novels and something like 95 failed short stories before he had something published. And I thought, wow, a writer that talented, it, it, it took him that long to get there. So I've got, I've got a ways to go and, and that's okay. Yeah, you wouldn't think that that particular author would have uh, had that kind of difficulty breaking in. Um, no, pretty pretty brilliant, pretty brilliant. Those guys, him, Daniel Woodrell. Um, I'm losing it on who, who wrote Winter, Winter's Bone. That was Woodrell. That, that Daniel Woodrell. Yeah, yeah. Okay, that was Woodrell. I wasn't sure. Um, you know, those guys just. Uh, um just really really moved me and i have no fucking idea where i was going with that statement so. <laughs> that it's, it's a fair statement so <laughs> it's it's kind of funny you mentioned that though and uh laurel and i were just talking about that same sort of thing earlier you know like when you're sending your stuff out there that there's like so many you know talented writers out there and like the whole thing about you know receiving rejections and stuff like that it's almost kind of like you said, hopeful in a way that like even some of these writers that we admire that are so talented, you know, they've gone through it, too, and have gotten, you know, rejections and stuff like that. So I can see where you're coming from with that. I have the same kind of viewpoint on that. We always have to have one awkward silence for sure. <laughs> yeah. um, you want me so. to jump in? <laughs> yeah, you can go ahead, Hank. Uh, what was your uh, what was the process like for you, Hank, when you well, sat I'll down and wrote an yours? That, that has sort of inspired me the way I, I guess Larry Brown did for Ian, um, and that's Paul Tremblay, um, because um, Paul uh, published a, a series, um, I guess long forgotten now, uh, about a narcoleptic detective. Um, called The Little Sleep, and I forget what the second one's called. I think it was originally going to be a three-book series, um, but they canceled the third book because the first two tanked so badly. And he had a he had a major publisher. Um, uh, was it? Shit, I've got it on my bookshelf here, but I think it was Little Brown. Um, but anyway, uh, the reason I cite Paul is because I've, my experience was with – my first experience was, was the major publisher – um, the, the, the book that came out first for me was under John Mantooth and it was, um, with, uh, Berkeley and, um, it absolutely failed miserably. And, um, so that's why I've sort of used Paul, Paul as my touchstone as my inspiration because he, he came back from that and now he's what he's a bestseller, I guess, um, got, you know, his, his career's doing, doing great. Um, but, um, I, uh, published uh the year of the storm in 2013 um and then my agent that i had at the time uh retired like a week after the book came out she called me and said and she was the only person that i knew in publishing other than my editor at penguin um she was the only person only contact i had 
And uh, she said that she was retiring. She was actually married to Chris Claremont of uh, X-Men fame. And um, at the time, the X-Men movies had sort of taken on a second, you know, uh, um, revival, I guess. And everybody was real excited about X-Men again. And his career had taken on a new life. And she said she was going to retire to focus on his um, his career and just kind of represent him and, and manage him. Um, so I was um, a week after my book came out. I didn't have an agent anymore. Right after that, we had the uh, the Penguin Random House merger, I guess. Um, and according to my new agent, which it took me probably over a year to find, um, that was one of the reasons my book fell through the cracks. Um, but, uh, for the, uh, Earl Marcus stuff, well, let me see, uh, 2013, the year the storm came out, uh, I had written another book. It was a crime novel called Tuscaloosa, um, set in Alabama. And that was what I found my new agent with, which is also Ian's agent. And um, in 2015, we tried to sell that and we had absolutely no success because everybody that read it said the same thing that my sales record. So this is what I understand about publishing. (laughs) I'm going to get on a (laughs) on a publishing rant here in a minute. But um, the sales record was too bad for the year of the storm. So nobody wanted to touch it. And um so I was very down. 2015 was probably the worst year of my writing career. And um, my agent said, why don't you just try to write something new? And um, I did. That's when I came up with the idea of the of the detective whose dad was a snake handling preacher. And um, that's when I wrote the, the Heaven's Crooked Finger. And um, we went to, um, so again, same, same experience. Went to multiple of the big publishers with it and, and got the same thing. Track record. Can't do this. Can't do it because his first book failed so so poor, so badly. Um, and then uh, Crooked Lane, uh, who is an, you know, an independent publisher, um, responded with, we would be willing to buy this if John would consider a pseudonym. <laughs> <laughs> which I still don't completely understand that, but uh, I said, of course I'd be willing to consider a pseudonym. I just want to publish the damn book. Uh, I don't care. I mean, uh, I did. I mean, I care a little bit, but um, so yeah, and that was sort of my, so I sort of had two publishing experiences, I guess the first one um, with Penguin, I thought I knew nothing. I knew nothing about publishing and um, just thought that my career, because I had a, a deal with penguin that that was going to be smooth sailing from then on. But I quickly learned, um, that that's not the way it works. So, um, that's where I am now. There'll be time for smooth sailing after we're dead, Hank. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Encouraging. (laughs) I hope that story made sense after three beers. I'm, I'm, No, it it does. It It definitely does. does. And I I think in the same way that, you know, you find uh, Paul Tremblay's story encouraging, I I feel like that is too, because it's like so many authors anymore. You think, okay, you sell that first book, you've got an agent, you're golden, you know, your your job is done. And it's just not the case. But but it's also good to know that, I mean, even if, you know, something for whatever reason doesn't sell because of that just perfect storm of just 
I mean, how much does that suck? You know, you've got that all set up, your agent randomly retires, and you know, this merger happens, and it just totally falls through the cracks. And then that sales record is held against you. Yeah, you know, and so the ability to bounce back from that and just be like, hey, you know, the worst thing that you think can happen is not going to ruin your career. You know, there's just other paths to take. So I think that's encouraging as well. Unbelievably frustrating, like ridiculously. Yeah. Yeah, but I mean, I'm not. Yeah, it, but I can't complain. I mean, I have been sort of given a second chance and uh, and, you know, we'll we'll see about one more with the book I'm working on now. We may do one more reinvention. We'll see. I don't know whether this one will be under Hank Early or John Mantooth, but we'll, we'll have to <laughs> see how, how it all works out. So <laughs> I was thinking maybe you should go with something like Fredo next time. <laughs> <laughs> I'll I'll go with whatever they tell me to go with. Yeah. <laughs> That's the thing. I didn't even come up with Hank Early. They they the publisher came up with it. You know, and you should tell the publisher that's the one thing I hate about them because I get all fucked up. It's like Hank Early, Earl Marcus. I which, told them which that. One is, <laughs> I told them that. I said, I, mean, I, don't I called you going to be Hank Marcus. Yeah, I I called you Earl when you first came <laughs> on the phone. You know, I, I totally get it. <laughs> I, I told them, I said, I think people are going to be confused. And they said, no, nah, nobody will be confused. And so. <laughs> and then they met me. <laughs> no, everybody's been confused. I'm sure. Also, John, John Mantooth is just such a badass writer name. Why wouldn't really? you want to stick I with it? I know. Yeah. That's, that's publishing gold. I love it. I mean, I mean I'm going to be honest. I, I, I love my name. I hated it when I was a kid. And 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 people made jokes about it, but as a writer, it's it's perfect. I've I've grown into it. But yeah, I mean, maybe one day, we'll see. We we'll go back to it. I hated my name when I was a kid too, but then I got old and arrogant, and now I'll fight over it. <laughs> well, it's because as much as we love our own kids, kids are sociopathic jackasses to each other. So, I mean, we. Uh, high tower and we're all short as hell so oh, low tower again very cool oh <laughs> super inventive guys awesome i was chung king all chung- what yep people in grade school because shane keen for some reason they thought that sounded so much like that because they were idiots they must be because I I don't even know where that came from. <laughs> that's, that's, that's because you're too fucking young, Rich. There's actually something behind that. It was a type of uh, store-bought Chinese noodles you could buy. <laughs> you learn something new every day. Yep. And you learn something new you just don't give a fuck about every damn day. So, so my old brother um, was was a very very good athlete, and um, and he was known in the neighborhood and at school as as either Tooth or Mantooth, sort of very respectfully because he was a very good athlete. Uh, and when I came along, uh, they called me Maybe Tooth. Um, <laughs> one day he'll be as good as his brother kind of thing so I hate that now I feel bad for laughing at that <laughs> no, it's, it's fine well so so you you mentioned Hank that you and Ian had had sort of uh, kind of struck up a like a Twitter friendship and 
And is that based, you know, on, on having the same agent and, and having the same publisher or. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, a Twitter friendship as much as you can be friends with somebody on Twitter and never have met them in person. I think we just sort of retreat, we retweet each other's stuff and kind of follow each other. Uh, I think we may have messaged a few times, but uh, yeah. Um, yeah. And I think that, I think maybe Ian reached out to me uh, um, because we did share, share the agent and the publisher uh, um, and his, his, his editor, your editor is Jenny, right? Right. Yep. Yeah. His, his editor um, is, she was sort of like the assistant editor on my books and, and I just loved her to death. I mean, she, I, I'm a, she's, she's great. I'll just leave it at that. But yeah, she's, she's a smart, uh, smart woman. And um, Alec, our, our agent, Alec actually mentioned Hank uh, during that initial phone call with, with him. Um, and so I actually went on Hank's website and I, and I read kind of that, that process that he went through changing the name and everything. <laughs> so, so it, uh, it, I guess it, it benefited me in the sense that I've never taken anything for, for granted when I was able to, to sell that book. And, and I've thought about that story a little bit because I of course released before familiar woods in the middle of a pandemic. So Please. whether the book will fill <laughs> any copies to anyone other than maybe my mother, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> Man, so I'm so is your name, that, is your name really you. Ian? Yes. My, my name is Ian. Yeah. <laughs> it may, it may, uh, it may change after this book. Yeah, God, we're not publishing this guy unless he changes his fucking name. <laughs> maybe I'll maybe I'll take the name John Mantooth and we'll just <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's not using it. <laughs> no, Ian, how has that been? I mean, obviously it's probably too early to to get any kind of sales results, but I mean, have you felt like do you feel like that that's really impacted things? I guess it has to have. I mean, yeah, I, I think it has. I, I try not to think about it. I mean, the reality is that most independent bookstores are closed right now. Um, they are shipping, but of course you, you don't get any of that foot traffic. Uh, Amazon isn't shipping books right now. So I expect it's going to be a, a bit of a disaster. Um, you know, Alec did say, well, we've got a heck of an excuse for the, the second one. If this one yeah. doesn't sell, yeah. I think that's true to, to some extent. Um, but it's, it's one of those things where you can only control what you can control. And um, I've just really kind of dove into the next book and yeah. it's as corny as it sounds. And it, it does kind of sound like, like bullshit, but I would, I would write and try to improve as a writer. Um, if, if none of my books were, being published it's just something i i really right. love to do it's not my source of income certainly yeah. uh, so I'm, I'm not too bent out of shape that, about it yeah yeah well um have you um have you written i mean were had you been published before this before you uh the cricket lane book no uh just short story short stories i have maybe five or six uh short stories in, in literary magazines but uh but that's it 
Well, I ordered your book. <laughs> I haven't received it yet, but uh, I'm looking forward to it. it sounds like it's so going to be great. That's one. That's one sale. That's that's better than I uh, thought. Waking up this morning. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. I feel you. You know, and that sucks, man. It's I feel so bad for you guys who had book releases just right yeah. now, you know, and. Um, it's not like the publisher can say, you know, hit the brakes, let's do this at a better time. It's too damn late. Um, but it's just really hard because that's what I've been explaining to people online. You know, if you buy a book, buy it from the author or from the editor, if you possibly can, because they're not getting the money real quick through Amazon right now. And they're not getting the sales real quick through Amazon right now, you know, so... And yeah, just, I think in general that's that's good that's good advice. Support your uh, local community, yeah. or not. Yep, yep. Hit indiebound.org. You can find an indie anytime you need one. There you go. What's the new website? That's what I ordered your book off, Ian. It's a uh, bookshop, I think. Oh yeah, bookshop. Yeah, yeah. I just ordered a couple books off off that as well. Yeah, it's a uh, bookshop. Will give part of the proceeds to uh, independent bookstores. Um, so oh, yeah, that's the way to go. I think I'm I, from now on. My links will not be Amazon. It'll be Bookshop when I share stuff. So yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think I'll follow suit with you on that. Um, I also try to. I've tried to remind myself during this time that the the books that I I really fell in love with. Um, I certainly didn't hear about them when they were released. Um, you know, I found them kind of years down the road and some obscure bookstore or something. So I do, I do think books uh, kind of find their way to the, the people who need them. Yeah. And, and Crooked Lane does a good job with libraries. Um, so when this is all over, I think, I mean, I, I assume when libraries open back up, people are going to be checking out your book um, and that's going to help too. Um, yeah. Word of mouth and that sort of thing. But um well, and, and just to add my little bit of encouragement on it, um, not that, you know, I'm definitely not on a bestseller list or anything, but Whispers in the Dark released in December of 2018, and nobody knew that it was anything until, like, late 2019. So, it you know, just nothing happened, like, initially, but that didn't kill it. It was more just it just happened much later. That was mostly just because I didn't know what the hell I was doing, but you know, it's, it, you know, it's not, it doesn't mean that it's over. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. Great. And it's a hell of a good book. It is just a hell of a really, really good book. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Well, thank you. And I know for a fact that Multnomah County library had already ordered it because I'm the motherfucker who asked for it. So, <laughs> <laughs> Well, Ian, have you ever gone to uh, WorldCat to look up your book? No, I haven't. Well, this is uh, something that's always made me feel a little bit better about sales is uh, go to WorldCat, look up your book, and see how many libraries have it. Um, yeah. I remember doing that and thinking, wow, it's in a lot of libraries. And that's why that's kind of why I think Crooked Lane does a good job is looking at the WorldCat. Um it's it's you know they get their books in libraries so yeah and every each yeah. one of those is a sale too so yeah they, that's that's encouraging yep I didn't even know that was a thing Hank I just yeah. googled it 
Thank you. <laughs> well, he's he's four bucks in. He knows what he's what he's doing at this point. <laughs> I, I would not say that. I'm I feel like I'm constantly reinventing every book I do, but uh, yeah, I've learned a few things. I have. Um, um, am I am I allowed to ask a, a question? Absolutely. A, oh yeah. <laughs> I'm I'm just curious because I'm. Um, you know, working on this, the second book. And when I was working on the first one, um, I never thought it would get published. So I never, I never thought about, you know, will this book sell or anything? And I'm, I'm curious with Hank, uh, his process in writing the second book and whether there were all these sort of voices in his head, trying to steer the book in a direction that might be more sellable. And, uh, if he was able to block those, those out because that's what I'm trying to yeah. do. Yeah, I'm. I'm. I've always been, unfortunately, pretty good at blocking out the voices that help me sell things. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> I, yeah, no, my, my my issue with with the second book, and I don't know what what your deadline is, was that I committed to a deadline that I could not uh, do a good job with the book in really, and that that's the second book's my most disappointing book because. Uh, to me, because I felt extremely rushed, and um, and that was all. I, I really didn't have any time to think about anything but trying to finish it. And um, so, but what was your question again? I'm sorry. <laughs> no, I, was, I was just kind of curious the the thought process of of kind of coming up with the story and whether you felt like you know, oh, I shouldn't take the book down this path because my agent might not like this, my editor might not like this, it might not sell. Okay. All those questions that I think you don't really think about in your, your first book. Yeah, yeah. This, this is always going to be there um, from now on. And I think you have to ignore it. You have to mm -hmm. actually let, you know, let Alex say he doesn't like it. And then yeah. even then, you may have to trust yourself and say, I do, you know, and, and you push back a little bit and, and let your editors say, I mean, there was that, yeah, that, that worried me a lot. I think I was more concerned with the second book about my editor not liking it than I was about, you know, my agent not liking it. Um, but yeah, I don't think that goes away. Um, yeah. and do you, how are you doing on your deadline? Do you have, do you have a deadline for the second one? Yeah, I, th I think I'm, I think I'm okay with that. Um, it's, it's mostly just, you know, I've just been thinking about, um, and I, I think I've been pretty good about blocking it out, but I do, I do have a, a sort of natural desire to get sometimes for the books to get a little different. Um, and I've, I've thought about, you know, is this book going to sell? And, and then I thought about, well, what, I don't even know what sells. I don't, I, I probably don't know if you showed me the top, 10 bestsellers out there. I've, I've probably never heard of them. So yeah. I'm probably thinking about something I don't even know anything about really. Well, I don't, you know, I, I think there's a lot of people that say they know what sells, but I don't, I don't think anybody really knows. I mean, I think there's always yeah. surprises. Um, so I think that's why you just got to write what, what works for you and what you feel passionate about, you know, follow your vision. And um, I think it'll find, it'll find the right home. Yeah. So, 
Yeah, because even from a buyer's standpoint, what sells to me right. doesn't sell to my sister, so, so to speak, you know what I mean? So it's kind of like it's going to hit it's going to hit somebody sooner or later. Yeah. Uh, Laurel's the Laurel's was one of the most encouraging stories there for me because uh, she went through all that shit trying to get that book published and then it comes out that it's the very first thing she's ever published. You know? Wow. <laughs> it took me nine years to write those. I don't know how that affects anything. <laughs> well, they weren't wasted years. Yeah. I appreciate that. <laughs> well, and I think, you know, from a, from like a sales standpoint too, when you're looking and thinking about what sells as you're writing, because like you said, Ian, it is not in general something that you think about when you're writing your first things because you you're not thinking about selling it initially um but i i kind of just more looked a little bit at some of the responses that my agent got back from some of the publishers and you know the the predominant we don't publish horror i just was like okay well i ignore you then as an entity because i don't care you know but um some of the things uh when they mentioned that they thought that certain elements were kind of um they'd already seen before and things like that. So I kind of started thinking about what elements were really interesting to me that I had not seen out and about. And and that's something that I started kind of paying more attention to. And that's part of why it struck me, you know, the the um, the story that that you had at the beginning with the two boys that you were telling us about and, and the, the snakes, just like little stuff like that. I don't know, kind of struck me just in looking at it. But you said you were already you're in the middle of working on that one, right? The, the next one. Uh huh. Yeah, 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 and yeah, and I and I've also sort of tried tried to take the approach that it would I'd be pretty miserable writing a book that I didn't want to write. So exactly. I guess at the end of the day, you write what what you want to write and, and sort of hope for the best. Yeah. Yeah. Can you tell us anything about what you're working on now, or all pretty under the hat? Um, it's the only reason it's it's under the hat is because I. I don't know that I've figured it out. Um, I don't outline or anything. So um, it, I think it takes me a few drafts before I really even know what, what the book is about. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I will say the, I, when I was doing some research for the, the first book, I read, uh, I read this um, statistic about how the, the suicide rate for uh dairy farmers is twice that of uh veterans and i thought that was a really wow. really wild statistic and uh it kind of stuck with me um and i started i started picturing uh generally for for my stories whether it's a novel or, or a short story there's usually some some kind of image that sticks with me and then i kind of start asking questions about it and for before familiar woods it was you know ruth sitting on the the porch with the deer rifle and then it was just kind of asking questions who's who's she waiting for why is there no car in her drive why does why does she have a deer rifle all all that sort of stuff and so for this this work in progress i i was kind of picturing a based on that statistic i think i was picturing a, a dairy farmer sitting out out on his porch and a his wife hanging sheets on a clothesline and I, I kept picturing this little girl kind of standing at the edge of their 
their dairy farm in front of these uh, rattlesnake ferns. And, and so I started asking questions about that. Um, and I kind of got interested in exploring uh, just kind of what's going on with small farms in the United States and this, this sort of desire to, uh, to pass something along to uh, the, the next generation um, and how some of these farms have been in these families for generations and generations, uh, but they're starting to, to just kind of disappear. And um, I don't know, all, the, all that stuff sort of, sort of started to, uh, to gel into a, a story. I, I'm sorry, I just cleared my throat. I thought I had my mic muted. Um, you know, living in Oregon, I, I've been around a lot of dairy farmers. They're all over the state. And from, from here to the coast, that's all you have is dairy country. And I, I might hang myself if I had to live that lifestyle. You know, <laughs> I mean, I've... Yeah, it's it's not a pleasant lifestyle. Those motherfuckers work their asses off for usually what ends up to be nothing but a government subsidy. Yeah, it's tough. And there, and there's so much, um, I think sort of personal, um, you know, family blood tied into it. And there, there's these stories from, um, some of the, some of the sort of worst times for, for dairy farmers where one story in particular in, in New York where, um, where a farmer woke up one morning and, and shot like 70 of, of his cows and, and then killed himself. And um, there were so many of these sort of acts of violence followed by suicide uh, that the, uh, the ag industry developed a, a hotline, a suicide hotline just for, for dairy farmers. And when you call the hotline, there's a, there's another farmer, you know, who picks up, picks up the phone and, I don't know. I, I think I just started getting interested in this this world. Um, with that being said, the, the the book certainly isn't about uh, farming. There, there's a there's a sort of second mystery in there that um, I guess I, I won't get talk too much about. But um, this this farming is just kind of a, a piece of it that I was interested in. Uh, yeah, because it sounded like you just described the world's strangest bizarro novel. Um. <laughs> well, that, that sounds good to me. <laughs> I think that's a great. I think that's a great way to start things, though. It's like something like that that catches your interest. Yeah, and yeah. then then you know you build the story and the characters around it. Um, I think that's really effective. Yeah, and and you were just describing like the rattlesnake bones and everything. That's that would definitely catch my attention. Yeah, create creates a, a sort of a set piece, I guess, which is um, which is important. Yeah, and I'm always interested in hearing people's uh, process on that because that's um, I I started out writing without outlines, and I've become totally converted that I desperately need them because I'm just very disorganized otherwise, and it takes me forever. But but I mean, you know, before Familiar Woods is something that reads very. Uh, you know, just cohesive. It's just very well put together. Um, so obviously that works. And, and that's interesting to hear about you creating the set pieces there. Yeah, I, I certainly feel uh, disorganized and um, kudos to you for, for doing something about it. I'm just, I'm just stubbornly steaming ahead. But uh, <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't know. For, for me, I think it's just, um, it's just a lot of drafts of, of, 
digging deeper into the the characters and the setting and usually i find that the the pieces are there so if i'm writing a scene i may be sort of in the character's head i'm looking around there's an object there maybe they're getting into their car and there's an object in the passenger seat i don't have any idea what that object is but i usually find that if i write that object down at some point later in the story i'm going to be writing a scene and that object is going to suddenly pop into my head and and there's going to be a connection there so there's a for me anyway there's sort of a uh, there's a necessary trust in the in that the things that your subconscious is sort of pouring onto the page all those pieces are going to be useful if you just just kind of keep pushing ahead that's yeah i don't i haven't written any long form fiction or anything but um with the project i've been on recently it's like I tried to outline, just sat there scribbling bad poetry and yellow legal patch, you know, so I just started hitting it that way, just kind of spitballing, you know, throwing ideas at the page until something stuck and grabbed my brain. And, you know, but like you say, it just usually it's something you put there hours ago or whatever, and you go back and read it, and that's just what you needed to get started on it, you know, and. I don't know how a person would outline for a poem. Um, it depends on what you're writing to, because it's it's uh, there's a lot more structure going on in the poet's mind than it looks like in the chaos on the page, really. You know. <laughs> I I I do not believe that the finished product is chaos. I'm just like. Well, I don't know how to write poetry either, so it makes sense that I would have no idea how to outline it. So. I had a I had an English teacher who hammered hammered into us that we were supposed to outline our poetry, and it always seemed ludicrous to me. But this uh, one, I was kind of trying to keep a running outline because of what I'm writing too, and I wanted to make sure I was keeping track of events in his work more so than in mine. Oh well, yeah, that makes sense. Uh, but it didn't work. I just sat there scribbling bad poetry. So <laughs> I, I'm not an outliner. <laughs> Hank, what about you? Are you an outliner? Yep. Was that no, something no, you came I'm, to I, the I'm not an outliner. And I was kind of giggling with the mute button on when um, Ian was explaining his process because it sounds a lot like mine. And it's just interesting to me that we both ended up with the same agent and at the same publisher. And I'm sure we probably <laughs> frustrate them in the same ways. Uh, <laughs> but it takes uh, it takes me multiple, multiple drafts um, to figure out even what my story's about. Um, I'll probably write. I mean, I'm, I'm not exaggerating. I'll probably write a million words um, before I figure out what the heck or, or, or for, from beginning to end. It'll probably be close to a million words um, because I'm just writing draft after draft and then i'll um i'm always pulling from other drafts too um so i never i never get rid of anything i never delete anything and um as i as i get more deeper into the process um that's one thing i'll that helps me i'll remember a, a scene that i did in the previous draft that i really liked that'll fit into the new draft and i'll go and copy it and paste it over and then work work it in you know make sure everything gets changed the right way 
to fit in with the new draft. Um, yeah, that's my, my process is a mess. Um, and, and I've tried outlining, um, I think I tried it. I think that was one of the things that really hurt me on that second book because I knew I had sort of a deadline coming and people said, well, just go ahead and outline it, know what's happening and then you'll be able to write it fast. And I outlined it and I started writing it and it was just like, I did not want to write every day. I sat down. I was like, I do not want to do this. There's no, nothing exciting about this to me. Um, so I learned during that, that, that I've got to have the, uh, the unknown. Um, I've got to sit down and not be quite sure about where everything's going. Uh, otherwise I'm, it's going to dry up pretty fast to me and it's going to be, going to be stale on the page. Um, so that, that excitement of, of not knowing is sort of what drives me and helps me, uh, helps me write out. Although it hurts me too, because it doesn't take me long. I've been working on this, this last novel now for, Let's see. I guess I started it in uh, January of 2019, and we're sitting what in April now of 2020. And I've written, like I said, probably 500,000 words on this one, but I don't have a. I'm not. I'm still. I'm still several months away. I'll, I'll put it that way. So. It's that. I mean, it makes sense though. If it, if the process of the outlining kills the creativity then i mean you have to set that aside just on its face yeah there's you know there's nothing there's nothing you can do about that i found when i outlined my actual writing seemed to suffer it was more by the numbers yeah uh, but when when i sit down without an outline the writing can go where it needs to go and and that does make sometimes the plotting harder but but that's why i do multiple drafts and i can come back and and kind of fix the plotting a little bit um, and, and try to tie everything back in. But um, if I don't do it that way, then then I tend to just, I, I don't, I'm not excited about the writing and, and I need to be excited about the writing. So. Absolutely. Yeah. That makes sense. Cause that's sure the only time I'm ever excited about writing is when it's new. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think if I had the whole, the whole, journey mapped out I think I'd just you know go well that looks like it would have been fun and walk away from it <laughs> yeah yeah it's funny you say that because um like I just finished something recently and I had I had no outline whatsoever and it was kind of fun like as those ideas came to you and then like refining them over time rather than kind of planning the whole thing out yeah, that's what I that's what I need. I I stopped fighting it. Um, and I know uh, John Irving always wrote the the last uh, the last sentence of the book first. That was the first thing he wrote, and um, that's why Stephen King said uh, that sounded a bit like kissing your sister. And I thought that <laughs> kind of that kind of stuck with me. <laughs> <laughs> I, couldn't, I couldn't hear i couldn't hear ian there i couldn't either i heard him say something about kissing your sister but yeah I thought, <laughs> i'm a little worried that's gonna get taken out of context yeah. <laughs> well, that's the only thing on the tape right now yeah. man so cut <laughs> 
No. <laughs> so I, I'll go ahead and repeat that just so people don't think I'm yeah. my sister. But um, <laughs> so, John, I know John Irving uh, writes by writing the last sentence of the book first, and then he works toward the ending. So he, he knows the ending ahead of time. And that was explained to Stephen King, and Stephen King said, wow, that sounds a bit like kissing your sister. Um, <laughs> the, the idea being that doesn't sound like fun. Yeah. 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 Well, and, and Stephen King, he can fall into the um, – his books can be a mess sometimes. So I think that's the risk you take. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, I just I, – I can't do it the other way. I mean, so – but something you said, Ian, you were you were sort of talking about, um, you know, maybe having having something. I think you mentioned like maybe in the the seat of the car, but you didn't know exactly what it was. Mm -hmm. You try to sort of figure that out in your writing. I think that's something that I've learned to do that that has really helped helped me with the with the plotting is to sort of have a, a question that I'm trying to figure out. And that I keep coming back to that question, like in the book that I'm writing now, um, the idea came to me, uh, what if there was an extremely uh, small sort of um, boarding school, um, sort of maybe in the mountains, uh, Tennessee, Georgia mountains, I think I've settled on Georgia as usual, but um, in this boarding school had this very small senior class of maybe 12 kids and they they at some point they realized that almost everybody in their class has been committing suicide um and that was sort of the problem i started with it's like well why why what could explain that and so i've been sort of working backwards from that in this and, and it is a it is a horror novel so there's some there's sort of some supernatural occult things going on that sort of explain it but um, that's, that's sort of the solution I found is to, is to give myself sort of challenges like that, that I'm curious about that I want to figure out. And, and then, you know, I sort of figured it out as, as I write it. And I do know now how they, why they all kill themselves. <laughs> now I'm curious. Yeah, me too. I'm just, <laughs> It, it takes a novel to explain it, so I'm not going to try. <laughs> <laughs> well, because, yeah, we have to buy the novel anyway. That's, that'd be, yeah. that's how that well, works. Come, come on, read it to us, man. <laughs> <laughs> but it's an utter mess on my hard drive right now, but <laughs> maybe in a few months. Well, that's always uh, interesting. That's, I, I just really like hearing people's different processes on that. That's so funny that you yeah. all have such a similar you know, approach to it. Yeah. I, I've got to feel most of the writers I like approach it that way, but maybe I'd be surprised. I don't know. Yeah. I've, I've certainly been always been jealous of the, the outliners just because like, like Hank said, I think it, it probably takes us a, a lot longer and you end up throwing, I mean, you can go down some bad, Paths and you end up throwing away, you know, entire novels. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's kind of interesting. Um, we had uh, Damian Angelica Walters on a couple episodes ago, and she released the book through Crooked Lane too. But um, 
and Shane and Laurel can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think she originally started as like a pantser and then she went to like outlining. So she's kind of like done both, but she's kind of, she kind of, I guess like the way she does it is kind of like a hybrid approach of the two styles. Cause she's kind of like you guys in that she likes that, um, like discovery phase. But she said that, but she also kind of mixes in some of the outline. Yeah, she said she was doing like she was out, outlining um, the character arc for her main yeah, yeah. for the most part, and that she learned it from that particular editor that she was working with on that book. Which it, it sounded really interesting, and it, I also tried it and I couldn't fucking do it. <laughs> Y'all just been on the Crooked Lane kick? No, she's another Crooked Lane author. Yeah, yeah, yeah. a damn good one. That's all and Crooked Lane is. Would that be categorized as horror? I would say so. Um, like a lot of people say, like thrillers. Some say horror. I think it's pretty much straight up horror. Okay. I think of it as a really super dark crime, personally. But I could see how others would call it horror and I wouldn't necessarily argue with them about it. Yeah. And that's, what's kind of interesting about it. I think is that you could pretty much call it any of those things and you wouldn't be wrong. Yeah. Right. But, uh, yeah, we, we have been on a crooked link kick and, just out of curiosity, because I don't know if you guys like have read other Crooked Lane authors, but um, what are some, some authors you would recommend to our listeners that are also on Crooked Lane with you guys? Yeah. <laughs> Ian, you can go. Uh, boy, I'd, I'd be kind of a bad bad person to ask that question. Just there, go to Fuck, I don't know. <laughs> now I feel now I feel bad I put you guys on this. I mean <laughs> Hank Hank Hurley, have you, you heard of that guy? Yeah. Uh, he's pretty good. <laughs> um, no, I but in terms of I've seen a lot of Cro- Crooked Lane seems to be growing a lot. And I've seen a lot of interesting books published uh, more recently by them. And I'm I'm pretty far behind on on my reading. Um, and I'll I'll go ahead and blame that on my daughter, but um, mm-hmm. I, I can certainly uh, there are two books and they're they're not Crooked Lane books, but they popped into my head just when you were talking about um, horror that I that I think some of your listeners might be interested in, not straight horror, but maybe they kind of straddle that grit lit horror line. Uh, one of them is a there's a kind of under the radar book uh, called Julius Winsome. I don't know if you if anybody's read that, but it's it's a it's a really interesting book um, about basically a a guy whose dog gets shot and he goes on this revenge uh, spree. But I I heard about it because I read an interview with um, Donald Ray Pollock and and he mentioned it as a book that kind of influenced him and it's uh it's well worth reading and it's uh, usually people i mention it to haven't haven't heard of it and then the other one is um tom franklin who we were talking about earlier 
And he has two, uh, Hell at the Breach, which is, I mean, I guess it's not horror, but a, a lot of horrible things happen in it. So a lot of very horrible things happen in it. Yes. And, and then uh, his other one, I want to say it's called Smunk. But I'm, it is. Yeah. So those, those two definitely, for me, kind of straddle that line of, of horror and, and literature. Yeah, and I think a, a lot of Tom Franklin really comes right right up against the edge at the very least. Just for the, I mean, as far as the darkness ratio goes. Yeah. It's kind of like Donald Ray Pollock. There's another guy who's kind of legendary to me. You know, yeah. His novel, uh, Devil All the Time, just is one of my favorite books of all time. Yep. I agree. It's a great one. Sorry, uh, guys. I, I can gossip like I can gossip my ass off about this stuff all night long. So I apologize. No. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I I agree with. Um, I had not heard of the first book that Ian named. What, what Ian? It was Julius. What What was it? Oh. Uh, Ju- Julius Winsome. Winsome. Yeah. I'll... Honestly, right. I honestly don't remember the name of the writer, but I'll right. look it up here. Yeah, I can find uh, it. Ger- Gerard Donovan. Okay. Um, I guess is it my turn? Um, yeah, Cricket Lane authors, I'm just to be honest, uh, I'm always about three to ten years behind in my reading. Like, <laughs> I'm reading right now, um, oh, shit. Nah, I've gone blank on the name. Um, fuck. I do that shit all the time, man. Don't don't sweat it. Um, well, shit. You can edit this part out, right, while I'm thinking? Sure. <laughs> I'll just say, uh, you know, don't feel too bad, because, like, I, I'm the same way. I just read uh, John Langan's The Fisherman, and I think right. I bought it, like, four or five years ago, so... Yeah, no, I'm I'm always behind. Um, and um, yeah, fuck, I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna move on from that book, but uh, and I'll come back to it in a minute when I remember it. Um, but I'll mention the one of my favorite books that I've read in the last couple of years is I mentioned William Gay earlier. Um, Ian, I don't know. Have you read The Lost Country? No, I haven't. I've read, I've read William Gay. Not that. I have I have it sitting right here beside me on my sofa. It is it is a spectacular book. I, I just I, that's I don't I don't usually read books more than once. That's just something I don't know why. I feel like there's always another book I could go read instead. But that's a book I think I'm going to have to read again. Um, and it's 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 not something I would say really delves into the horror. But it, it's definitely um, got a regional noir thing going and just just almost a magical uh, the setting in that in that story is magical to me. Um, and I remembered now that other book I was talking about. I knew once I start stopped thinking about it, I would remember it. But I'm finally getting around to reading House of Leaves. Uh, oh, yeah. A horror novel. I guess you could call it a horror novel. I don't know. Shit. Yeah. Uh, I call yeah. It, that's horror. But what, when did that come out? Like 2004 or something like that. So I'm I'm way behind the times. Um, but 
so far i, I enjoy it um it, it's it's not an easy read though i mean it's something that i've nah. got to really i've got to really focus on and um but but i, I brought that up to say that the, the crooked lane authors um ian's books on the way and i plan on reading that one um but i don't think i've read any, any other crooked lane authors so that's that's probably bad but um you know honesty is the best policy i guess yeah we're yeah. just guilty at least I yeah am. <laughs> yeah we we all are like i said with the john langan book i i just finished that today and i loved it but I, like i said i had bought it a couple years ago because i'm one of those people where like there's so many great stories books out there i just buy a whole bunch of them and like you said the to be read list is always growing and seems like you're always right. kind of falling behind right um trying to think what else uh i've been recommending um a book called uh salvage the bones by jessamine ward um for a couple years now uh because it was a it, before probably the lost country that was the last book that really just sent me for a loop uh are y'all familiar with jessamine ward no. i know I know that name. I'm looking it up because I feel like I should know. Yeah, uh, I've been writing all the titles down so I can go uh, look them up later. <laughs> it's it's a it's a book about uh well okay yeah yeah it's about Hurricane Katrina is probably not doing its service, but it's set during Hurricane Katrina or the days leading up to Hurricane Katrina, and um, it's just a brutal brutal story, um, extremely well written. Um. Anyway, I, I could. I'll. Do you want me to keep going, or do you want me to? Because I'll actually open up Goodreads now. To... <laughs> <laughs> that is the only way I know what I've read. <laughs> I'm, I'm 48, and, and my mind's not what it used to be. But I can. Is if I'm looking at Goodreads, I can remember shit. Um, the Topeka School, uh, Ben Lerner, um, was a good book. Um, I really like that. It taught me a lot about um, sort of uh, trusting the reader because he goes on these really crazy, almost like psychedelic kind of uh, forays, and they all worked to me. And I just like I wouldn't have the guts to try that, um, but he made them work. So that's sort of helped me, I think, as a writer is uh, is reading that one. Um, but that's the only book I've read by Ben Lerner. Uh, but he's got several others out there. Uh, I'm not going to go through my whole good read, so I'm going to stop. <laughs> yeah. I was we'll gonna say, do, I, do I get to go next? <laughs> we'll, have to, we'll have to all add you on Goodreads, though. I think, but, I, um, I think I have you already, but I'll check that, yeah. yeah. But I was just curious, and I don't know if you've read it, Ann, but um, like, how have you found uh, House of Leaves, Hank? Um like, I know when I first read it, I'm one of those people that has to, like, read from start to finish. I can't skip around. If it's okay. a series, I have to start at the beginning. Right. So that book for me was a total mindfuck, basically, because, like, it'll tell you to, like, skip a couple pages yeah. and there's footnotes and all kinds of crazy yeah. stuff. Well, at a certain point when I when I found myself flipping back and forth, it, it hit me. I was like, okay. I am literally in the labyrinth now, and, and 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 I think because of that it works. I mean, I think 
that it's it's sort of a book about a labyrinth and reading the book yeah. is, is a labyrinth um but it, it's frustrating at times because especially yeah. to me because I, I i've so far i've enjoyed the i guess the front story a little bit more than the footnoted story and so when the yeah. big footnotes interrupt i've been reading them but i'm impatient to get back to the story about the house uh but i'm, I'm still i'm still not I've been uh, I've still got a good ways to go. I've, I've sort of been distracted on some. I've been reading a memoir, um, too, um, about a uh, this about the singer of a, one of my favorite bands. Uh, you guys have listened to the Water Boys, <laughs> so, sort of an Irish rock band. Um, anyway, been reading. I have memoir. not, but that sounds uh, the Water Boys. Yeah, the yeah. Water Boys. Yeah. Great nice. band. Their heyday was the '80s, but they're still putting out records. So, those are the best concerts to go to, actually. I think. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, enjoy, enjoying House of Leaves, and I, I, I don't know why I couldn't think of the name earlier. I had House, but I couldn't think of the rest. So. Yeah, that's one of those interesting uh, books. I think uh, Mark Danielewski. I think he he wrote a couple scripts for it and I think he released those. I don't know where I, it might be like Patreon or something, but that's one that like, I basically saw it kind of like how uh, Mike Flanagan said, Gerald's game was unfilmable. Hmm. I know people have talked about adapting that and I honestly have no idea how they would do it. <laughs> It'd be tough. Yeah. It would be tough. Yeah. Very, very meta kind of book, I guess. Um. Yeah, but I guess uh, we had you guys on here for quite a while. And, um, well, <laughs> what are you laughing at, Shane? <laughs> the, the five minute pause. Rich goes, well, Rich goes, well, fuck, none of them are going to bail me out. I guess I'll. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, basically I I felt like I was just rambling about House of Leaves for a while and That's cool. <laughs> yeah. I wasn't sure have you any of you have you read it in or heard of it or I haven't. I, I certainly heard of it. Um I think it came out when I was in college and I remember pulling it off the bookshelf and seeing words uh going up vertically and everything and thinking, <laughs> What the fuck? <laughs> um, <laughs> And I've always yeah. been intrigued by it, but I, I just, it seems like, um, you, you've really got to kind of make the dive. And I, yeah. there's so many other books that are on my list that I, I haven't felt like I could devote my time to it yet, but, um, I'll be curious to, to hear how Hank ends up liking the, the finished product. You gotta be in the right headspace for it. I think for sure. So, I, don't know, I don't, Yeah. Like with me, it's like that. There are there are not enough meds in the world to make that book not too fucking distracting for me. So it's like I have distraction issues without trying to read a book that makes me have to focus on it. <laughs> hey, let me also mention um, Nathan Ballingrude. Oh yeah, you guys know Nathan, right? Did yeah, you him on the podcast. Not yet. His uh, his uh, wounds. Um, the six stories is is amazing if you haven't read that or you probably have but that's a that's another really good book uh, that I've read recently 
And um, I also loved his uh, North American Lake Monsters. Too, so. Yeah, that's he what I've read by him. What? Um, he just finished the novel, and um, I bet it's going to be good because he is just an, he is an amazing talent. Yeah, he is. I, I didn't know he had been writing a novel. Um, yep. I read uh, North American Lake Monsters is all I've read, but I've been back to it several times. Yeah, check out Wounds. It's uh, just six stories, um, and you know they made a Hulu movie out of it. Um, but I didn't watch the movie, and, and um, because I just I don't know I just didn't want to ruin the the the, the story in my head. But um, but but uh, I'm really fond of the of the collection. Yeah, I will check it out because I I haven't watched the movie either. But because I haven't read the book, I haven't watched the movie. I don't. I don't ever watch movies if there's a book that came before. <laughs> he's somebody you might want to think about too, because he, he's a super, he's a super nice guy. Um, he's come to a couple of the noir bars that I've done in, in Birmingham. Um, so he's a, he's a good guy. Good, great writer. Uh, yeah, I'd love to get him on. Have to get, I think Rich has actually read wounds. I could be wrong about that. Yeah, I haven't I haven't read it, but it's one I want to read. I hadn't heard of it. I just added it to my Goodreads list as we as I had mine pulled up too. That's the only way I remember anything. Uh, he's yeah. he's a he's a brilliant dude. Yeah, and so such a I mean just down to earth, super nice guy. Um, easy to get along with. Sometimes people surprise you that way, too. It's like uh, Max Booth online is kind of a dick, but when you get him on the show, it's okay. Yeah, I don't, I don't know Max. In fact, I'm not even sure I really know him online. I've heard that name before, but... Uh, he'll strangle me. He'll he, What he will do is me, he'll message me and say, are you talking about my dad? Because I didn't use the third, and he's, does, he does like people to use that. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, that's funny. Shane making friends wherever he goes. Max is kind of a dick online, but... (laughs) He's pretty cool when you talk to him. (laughs) (laughs) So, um... Go ahead. No, I was actually probably going to ask the same thing you were. Go right ahead. Um, I'm going to have to bail here pretty quick. So... That's where I was going. Where were you going? That's I was going to ask them if they had anything else they wanted to, <laughs> to throw out. <laughs> there, you there. So there you go. <laughs> we are we're always this graceful. Just in case you're wondering, we don't practice. Absolutely. It just comes natural to us. <laughs> I, I'll just say uh, thanks to all you guys um, for not just for the podcast, but I mean, you guys on Twitter have retweeted my tweets and promoted my work and um and ian too i appreciate all you guys every little bit helps and um i i I suck at social media um and it every time somebody helps me out a little bit it 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 helps a lot so I, i appreciate it and it helps us too because it helps us to try to make sure you keep writing stuff because we wouldn't be pushing it if it wasn't good yeah 
fully agree. You're you're most welcome, and I'm really glad you you were able to come on here. That's uh, I've been looking forward to talking to you. Yep, thank you. I was too, both of you. Yeah, and, and I'll just I'll just echo that. Uh, really appreciate uh, all of you pushing uh, pushing good books out there, and I've certainly got uh, a lot of books written down based on books that you've mentioned. Um, and I'll I'll give one one final uh, recommendation for uh, because we talked about the woods a lot and also suicide. Uh, um, Percy's new collection, Suicide Woods. Another another guy who kind of runs horror and uh, yeah. Horary or, or, Oh, okay, uh, well, awesome. But I liked his other collection. Yeah, yeah, talented, talented writer, and and falls under the category of uh, good good people as well. So that's always right. nice. Yep. Yeah, that's awesome. He writes Wolverine comics now too, right? Yeah, yeah he's he's a busy guy. I think he's got some scripts going too, and he's yeah. he's doing for himself. Excellent. Awesome, awesome. Well, let me recommend that anybody who hasn't read Hank Early or Ian, did we fuck your name, Ian? Is it Pasarchik? That, that's it. You got it. Okay, awesome. Ian Pasarchik, I'm an authority on that name. Um, <laughs> those, I do recommend that you read those guys' books, so if you haven't unfucked that quick, um, because you'll be doing yourself a favor and helping some really great authors out at the same time. Fully agree. Well, um, yeah, Rich, you want to, are you yep. listening to me? Yeah. Rich, you're so the goddamn MC. Do your well, yeah. well, hey, I, I tried and then you laughed at me. So I was like, yeah, I'll let Shane do it. <laughs> but no, I, I, I just wanted to thank you guys both for coming on here. Um, I've, really enjoyed all of your books um i remember when shane first recommended uh your books hank um and listening to shane on that was probably the best thing i've done and then Anne, uh shane and i both discovered you at the first time we loved your book and we we hope you know people listen to this and they'll pick it up and enjoy it as much as we have hey here's something real quick too about that when when crooked lane was marketing that um, they marketed it at least on NetGalley as kind of a yeah. if you like David Joy, then you're gonna you're gonna like this book. And um, so yeah, I would I would echo that to anybody listening. If you like David Joy, I think th- that uh, there's a high level of confidence in me that you will like Ian's work as well. I praise. Thank thank you. Appreciate that. Mm-hmm. So go ahead, Rich. Get us out of here. <laughs> I already did, and then you had to go ahead and jump back in there. Yeah, I'm just but, yeah, you. No, I know. But it was it was a lot of fun, guys, and you guys are welcome back anytime. If you ever want to come back on the show, just shoot us a message and we'd be happy to have you back on. Sounds good. Thank y'all for all that all you right, did. man. You guys yeah, take care. Great. Thank you. All right, I'm gonna yeah. see y'all. <laughs> <laughs> See ya. Bye, guys. Is is it? Are are you in the shower, man? <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> well, see, and now they hung up on me. See how <laughs> Did it not sound like someone was in the goddamn tower to you? <laughs> maybe, maybe we start with a greeting next time. <laughs> <laughs> Who the fuck is this? Yeah. <laughs> Why did you answer while you were in the shower, Ian? What the fuck? Because we didn't tell him that he didn't have to be on the video camera. Fuck that. <laughs>